chapter 1, and today is mostly an overview, an introduction, so, um, you know, you may want the whole book of Job explained today, that will not happen, okay? You may have your questions already, some of those we'll kind of take as we get, as we get to them, but we will take questions at the end, um, if, if you feel like it's kind of a big picture sort of question. Um, First off, let me just say that the book of Job is, let's see here, we have a new set of markers here. Did you steal the markers? Mm-hmm, yep, yep, surprise, surprise. Job is spelled like Job, but it is pronounced Job. Job chapter one. Oh, well you can turn to Joel, but you'll be lost over there. Already there, okay. Well, maybe I'll make it easier. Page 512, okay? Maybe that'll help. Um, and as we look at Job today, um, I'm, we'll just uh, read the first few verses. I'm not even planning to necessarily get into these verses, but I do have some, several verses throughout the book that we're going to look at as we look at the big picture. How many of you have ever had a hard time reading Job? All right. We have some. We have some others that don't have a hard time with that book. So, And um, maybe you say, I haven't read Job. Okay, that's fine too. Um, it's a unique book, very unique book. And um, we'll get into that a little bit. So um, let's just read the first uh, five verses. Today I'll read, and um, we'll read these verses in introduction, okay? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there were seven sons and three daughters born to him. Also his possessions were seven thousand sheep, and three thousand camels, and five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred female donkeys, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one on his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were completed, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job did this continually. Let's have prayer. And uh, Pastor Jeremiah, would you pray as we begin? Amen. All right. Well, as we get started looking at the book of Job, um, I want to just tell you that there's a lot I don't yet understand about the book of Job. And hopefully as we study more and learn more that we can all understand it more. But a lot of the introductory material is, um, I think, some things that will help us to put things in their proper place and see some of the big picture and some of these things. And so today's lesson is kind of foundational for the lessons here to follow. I'm hopeful, and I say hopeful, that uh, we won't get super lost in some of the details later in the book. I'm hoping to not spend 42 Sundays on Job. I don't know if that's possible. 42 chapters, that's a lot to cover. But the, the passages where there's a lot of conversation, we may move a little quicker, quicker through some of those. So let's uh, go over some of the basic details of the book. The author of the book, we do not know. So it is unknown. Some people say that it is Job himself. Um, some people have suggested others such as Moses or Solomon even. And um, we certainly do not know for sure. Two reasons why, um, well, let me show you a couple things. Job, turn to Job 28. And again, this is simply what some people wonder when you look at Job 28, some people interpret this section, Job 28, as not from the words of Job, uh, from the mouth of Job, okay? 
and they see this as the author of the book writing, and they say that this is not what Job spoke, all right? That's something we'll look at more in detail when we get there. The other little detail is actually at the end of the book, chapter 42, and this is, there's a number of Bible books that have this scenario, so it's not really a big deal uh, as far as who wrote the book. But if you look at verse 16 of chapter 42, it says, After this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being full, being old and full of days. All right. So it's obvious that Job didn't write those last, you know, couple verses. Because when you're dead, you're not writing, right? But the same thing is true of the Pentateuch. You have the same thing. So that's a little bit irrelevant, but some people will point to that. Um, it is interesting, though, that this book seems to be very, very early. Some people claim it's earlier than Genesis. And so we don't, by earlier, we mean written before. We're not saying it's before creation, okay? Um, but uh, so, so it is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And the, we'll talk about the dating of the book here in just a moment. So when we talk about the date, there's two things when we discuss date, and most of them will be about the events, but the date of the events and then the date of the pen. And what, by that, we just mean the date that it was written down. Okay? So I don't really have a lot to say about the penning of it. it obviously, uh, most of it was probably penned after the events happened, and so you know, it's a record of, of what took place. There's certainly a lot of detail, right? So you either have someone who's miraculously told all this of God and they're writing it down, or there's someone who is there. So, you know, if, if you take those two options down, you know, you're pretty limited in your authorship. But the date um, of the penning, again, is unknown, and it's certainly after the fact of some of these events, but um, how quickly it was written down, we don't know for sure. Let's talk about the date of the events a little bit. This is a little more um, detail-y, and we'll talk about even in the first verses that we just read, did anything jump out to you about time period or something unique that we wouldn't find in other time periods? Some of you say, what did we read? It was the first five verses, and it was specifically in relation to Job's children. What was Job doing for his kids? He was praying for them, okay making sacrifice yes specifically he was offering sacrifice for them now we know that if this was moses time with the law that that would be a big no-no right because once moses came along with the law the only sacrifices were through the levites right and this is like the dad of his family and he's offering separate sacrifices for each child and all that so that tells us that the events of the book are before the law of moses right because job is talked about as a good man right if someone's doing that after the law is written, they're not a good person. They're breaking the law of God at that point, right? But for this time era, now, is there someone else in the Bible that offered sacrifices before Moses? Abraham did, that's right. Did anyone else offer sacrifices? Cain and Abel did, that's good. There's one more I'm thinking of. Noah, that's right. I was hopeful with the Genesis 1 through 11 study that we would have some of that down. I was talking to Dr. Surrett this week about the book, and I told him, I said, we just finished a study on Genesis 1 through 11. I said, um, and he said, oh, that'll be a nice backdrop to, to teach this from, because, you know, that happened in that era. So, yeah, so, so we see other people offering their own sacrifice, Noah, Abel, um, Cain, uh, Abraham, and so on. Also, we, we understand this to be after the flood, okay? We understand this to be after the flood, Let's scoot down to chapter 1, verse 17. Well, yeah, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and fell on the camels and have carried them away. The Chaldeans. Do you remember in when we worked through the list of the people? I know it was a big list, and you might have had some crossed eyes a little bit in there. But the Chaldeans were talked about, the founder of Babel, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And so because we see the, this people group here, we understand that it has to be after they existed. And so this tells us it's after the flood. So at this point, we kind of have two big anchors that we know it's before the law of Moses. We know it's after the flood. And now we can be a little more specific as we study some more. Um, now, this next thing is not something that you'll necessarily see right in the text, 
But as you study the book of Job, you'll discover, especially if you study with Hebrew and the language aids and things, that there's a number of languages where words are borrowed from that are used in the book of Job. Well, if you remember our Genesis 1 through 11 study, there was a certain point in time at which languages came to be, right? That would be the Tower of Babel. So because we have evidence of different languages or words being used from other languages, then we would understand this to be after the Tower of Babel. So we've, we've kind of honed in the one side even further, Tower of Babel up to the Law of Moses time. Next, we, we see a reference to the land of Uz, okay, land of Uz, and um, the term Uz is used in a couple places else in the Bible, but we don't know for sure precisely where this place is, but it does call him a man of the east, okay, it uses that uh, in verse 3, this man was the greatest of all the men of the east, so we understand Job to be still and again, you, you might say east from what, right? <laughs> I mean, east in relation to... But if, if we understand just the, the Middle East or, or Israel or, you know, whatever the context was written, it was, it was to the east. Um, most of the Bible, we, we kind of have this general range of where most events happened, right? And if you think of the eastern portion of that, you're looking over at Babylon and the area around Babylon and, and kind of eastern Mesopotamia. So we understand that to be in that, in that era over there. So uh, this tells us that it, again, this, this reference to the men of the East and the Chaldeans, it, it shows us that people had been developing, right? You had the, the division of people at the Tower of Babel. You had these various languages. And there's obviously conflict between these people groups now. And the Chaldeans are coming, the Sabaeans are coming, and there's these people groups happening. So we understand this to be after the Tower of Babel, and a lot of people, myself included, would, would probably put it around the time of Abraham, maybe before, halfway close to. But um, you remember the number of generations we worked down through from the flood to Abraham, right? And in the middle was that Peleg guy when the earth was divided. So I think, um, I have to go back and look, I think we're talking about four to five generations after the Tower of Babel. Somewhere in that range is where we, we find Job. Um, another piece that you can get into with history is that the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans here seem to be nomads and that they're moving around. And that was early Chaldean history because later Chaldeans, they were all around Babylon. They were anchored there and living there. So again, that tells us early Chaldean um, in, in history there. Um, and then also we have, and these are kind of uh, side mentions, but the, the book mentions pipe and it mentions lyre and harp and so on. And so this is certainly after they're invented. So you kind of, what you do is you kind of take these little, little hints and little pieces and these different things and you kind of build a, a big picture of, of date. So um, I think a rough date for Abraham is about 12, uh, I'm sorry, 2250 would be Abraham. So we're probably talking, you know, prior or around the time of Abraham. That's a very rough estimate, okay? Ultimately, the dating is not a huge deal when it comes down to understanding the book, right? I think as long as you know this is not Moses' time, that'll help you out. You understand it's after the Tower of Babel, that'll help you out. It's probably really the only two big things you need to know when it comes to, to putting the, the date on the book. All right, let's look also at who... Um, and, and this is more of a question because I, I don't have any answer, but usually when you study a book, you, you examine who the recipients are. And I haven't given this a whole lot of thought until I studied, you know. Who are the recipients of the book? Uh, who would read Job? Right? What, would they, what would they make of the book? These first people that read the book. I wonder if the book was not used as a biblical bridge, and again, we can't prove it because we don't know, but a biblical bridge to lead up to the law of Moses time, where you had this book that laid out who God was about offering sacrifice, about having trust in God. I mean, there's, when we read the book, uh, especially without understanding, it can be a lot of confusion and, you know, what's, but as you zoom out and you understand all that the book is teaching, there is a robust 
big development of who is God. How does he work with us? What is his plans toward us, you know? And so for, for early people that did not have other writings, if this were the, the first book written, it could be a scripture that would help introduce them to God. Remember, the flood days are behind them. Noah is passing off the scene. Some of that oral connection and the human connection is being lost, and humanity is multiplying. So you, you might have first scripture here as we read the book of Job. All right, let's talk about what type... Well, is there any question or comment so far before we go any further? Oh, yeah. Mm. That is interesting. I, I have not given that a great deal of, of thought in my study yet, but um, now are the questions may be coming from his friends or are they questions from God to man? Because that final section, you have God asking Job all those questions, right? Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, there are some questions that help lead you to truth, right? And, and there's other questions where even in the question, you can kind of have a theology behind the question, you know? So it's amazing what we can learn just from someone asking some questions. Mm. Yes. Yes. There must be. And I... I wonder if by the time we're done with the book that there will have been a hundred questions asked in the, in the time all together, right? So we'll have a hundred in the Bible and a hundred right here, and hopefully you get some of them answered. Yes, sir. And you know, we have to remember too, after the Tower of Babel, like people did divide and go their separate ways, but we don't know how quickly they settled down, right? And so some groups may have spent more time roaming, you know, and, and so maybe the Cal, like, that, that Chaldean point is a historical, like the Bible doesn't tell us they were nomads, right? But it, the idea that they came upon them and other historical things have that nomadic idea. So, um, yeah. All right, anything else? Deborah. Well, uh, yeah, and there again, you know, we don't know for sure. Obviously, if it was penned later under Moses' time or Solomon, right, then you have like an oral passing down or something. So that's, we're kind of guessing a little bit. But, but I think, um, uh, you know, we don't know. I mean, if you're looking at the oldest manuscript of Job, you're, uh, you're not going to get much of an answer there because we don't have super, super ancient manuscripts. Um, there is one that's about 200 AD, I'm sorry, 200 BC that they have, and, um, and actually that's written in Greek. It's the Septuagint translation. So, you know, you do have very, from our perspective, that's a long time ago, right? But in comparison to when the events happened, you're still, like, that's 2,000 years after, right? And so just the way that Scripture is preserved, um, it's, you know, down through centuries and through time. So we don't have anything older than that that I know of. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, I, I wonder if Moses did not work in bringing it into their canon, so to speak. Um, I mean, he was there and he authored the Pentateuch. So, you know, again, we're guessing a little, but if it was written much prior, 
I think the point is that as you read it, you see a theology that lines up with the rest of the Bible. And so, you know, you read Genesis 1 through 11, and you see the theology there, and then you read this book, and they, they certainly harmonize, right? And so, over time, I mean, your question is kind of about canonization and how that happened, and it's a very long time ago, so we don't know with Job. But, you know, I, I, I still, so for example, would Abraham have heard these things, Right? could this book have been used where Abraham was reading Job, right? And then God came and said, leave the, you know, we don't know. We don't know some of that, but certainly it's scripture and we know God used it, right? Sooner or later it was. So um, good question, but no answer, just some surmisings. Anyone else? All right, let's talk about what type of book it is as far as genre or category. This is the category, I'll call it genre, of poetry, all right? Now, this book is very unique in that the, when we say poetry in America, we think roses are red, violets are blue, I think you're nice and so are you. Except that's not a bad, that's a bad poem. Um, you know, but we think rhyme, right? We just, that's what we think of poetry and like crossing the bar and, you know, famous poems of, of famous people. Well, the poetry in the Bible is literary and it is poetic, but not in the rhyming fashion, especially since we're using a translation of it. But it's more of a style of writing where it is meant to be literature, but they're using their system and their mindset in their, their poetry. The first three chapters, we might say two to three, depending how you define it. First two chapters are more like history. We call it prose. It's like narrative story format, right? Once we get to chapter three, we start having the poetry format. I mean, just scoot down to chapter three, verse seven, all right? Oh, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come into it. Let them curse it who curse the day, who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of its twilight be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Do not let it see the dawning of the day, because it did not close up the doors of my mother's womb or hide sorrow from my eyes. This is poetry, all right? It's, it's, uh, there's no other way to describe it. So when we understand the poetry genre, it helps us as we work through the, the text a little bit just to see the, the poetic nature of things. And at times you'll see the same as in Proverbs where you have you know, line A and line B and how line B comes from line A or it builds upon it or sometimes it's contrasting lines. And so there is a, a, a poetry background. Um, so I, remember how I said the first couple chapters are, are prose? Well, the, the last part of the book also is prose, where it gives a narrative. So what we kind of have is like a couple chapters of story to give us the context for this huge discussion. And then at the end, we have like the, the epilogue or the postscript, if you will, that tells us what happens. Um, if you think of it in movie terms, it's like you have this little introduction part of the movie and then you have the flashback and the whole movie is like this other thing and then at the end, you, it like tells you how it turns out, right? So it's, it's kind of that way with Job where you have these two on the ends. You have the intro and the conclusion, but most of it is this poetry that we're talking about. It uses a lot of vocabulary. It's a very diverse uh, vocabulary. 110 words are found in this book that aren't found elsewhere in the Bible. And again, that fact is one thing that points people to say it's an early book because the, the words that are used are sometimes older or more unique and so may have kind of fallen out of use by the time other parts of the Bible were being written. Um, it's written in Hebrew, but it borrows some terms from at least five other languages. All right, let's talk about the theme of Job. What is the theme? And... Um, just off the top of your head, what would you say the theme of Job is? Tim. Not denying God. Okay, I like that one. Deborah. Trials. Okay, what were you going to say? The work of God. Okay, all right. Well, uh, yes, Debbie. Patience. Okay, absolutely. These are all really good answers, and I, at this point, I don't, I'm not here to say, like, I have the perfect answer to that, but I, I do say that it's suffering in relation to sin and in relation to God, and um, 
probably I should say in relation to God and in relation to sin. Put God, Bob, first there. Because throughout the book, there's this huge discussion about why are you in trouble? And, and that question is a question that a lot of people ask, right? Why did this happen to me? Why am I in trouble? And the book of Job doesn't give us the answer, but I think it warns us about some things that are not the answer. And, um, and that's really, really important. Um, so there's some sub-themes that I've identified that are found in the book. Um, human comfort during suffering, certainly how the friends interact with Job can teach us about how we should interact with other people in their suffering. Another sub-theme is questioning God. Um, the why leads me, you know, why God? Like that question. Um, we find Job questioning God. And then, uh, you know, in the question, why did you allow this? Why did you do this to me? And that why question is really important because if we follow the why question back, the question behind that is what kind of God is this, right? Why would you allow this to happen to me, God, right? And then the question behind that is what kind of God would allow this to happen to me, right? And for many people, they have interpreted life through this lens. Something bad happened to me. God has power over all things. Therefore, God is bad, right? That's how their logic has worked. This book is a huge answer to that, not in that it tells you why everything happens to you, but it tells you about the God behind that and about the philosophy that teaches good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If, you, if something bad happens, it's because of something bad you did. If something good happens, it's because of something good you did, right? That theology and philosophy has permeated a lot of people's thinking, and it's very bad. It, it really is. It's very bad thinking. It's bad theology. And Job teaches us that. And so, I'm sorry? Karma, right. That is a, yeah, and there is a Christianized karma that, that people believe in. And, you know, people talk about the blessing of God and losing God's blessing and these different terms, which have some legitimacy to a certain point, but they are not, they are not hard and fast rules. And there, God does not always operate according to that measure. And, and let me also say, especially in the short term, especially in this life. And so Job really takes this on. I mean, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers can't preach Job. They just can't. Like, it doesn't work for them. And so Job is a strong rebuke to the prosperity gospel and to that teaching and that uh, approach. So, and, and in, someone else has said this, and I think there's some truth here too. The book gives us the answers we need rather than the answers we thought we wanted, right? And, and when you work through Job, you see that at the end, God doesn't actually answer his question, but he gives him a lot of other answers that help him accept the reality of where he is. Um, if you could think of it this way, and I know this is big picture, and, I hope, and we haven't studied the book yet, but if you could think of it this way, the, the theme begins with a lot of talk about justice and God being just and his interactions with man. But the more it moves, it moves to God's wisdom. And his wisdom and his power. Both of these are emphasized in the, the end of the book. And there's all this talk in the book about justice, justice, justice. Do we serve a God of justice? We do. But the problem in the story is the people couldn't see the justice being unfolded in their time or in that moment for them. And the move in the book moves to this wisdom of God and how God is more than simple, simply just, but he's also many, many other things. And he is all wise and he is all powerful. And that's the emphasis of the end of the book and how a focus on that almost, it didn't answer their question of justice, but it helped them, maybe we would say, set it aside for the bigger picture. And, um, you know, I, maybe you all have a better answer than that as we work through the book and see something I haven't yet seen, right? Um, so another, two other things it, that are kind of sub-themes is that there's a lot of talk about creation, and so science and creation, those topics will run across them a lot, especially in the, the back and forth between Job and his friends. 
and, and also God's response at the very end. There's a lot of talk about creation and scientific things. And then the other sub-theme is philosophy. There's, there's some philosophical discussions about life and about suffering, and that kind of enters into that. All right, let's talk briefly about the outline, and I'll probably use, let me just put it over here, because I have several things to say about the outline. So I've already mentioned the, the prose poem, prose, right? The beginning and the end, our story in the middle is this poem. But there's a couple other things about the, the layout that I want to give to you. You could say it this way. In chapters 1 and 2, we have God and Satan talk. And if you know the story, Satan comes to God and he challenges him. Or no, Satan comes to God and God challenges Satan and says, have you seen my servant Job? So we have God and Satan talking in the first two chapters. Now, in the next section, who do we have talking? Job and, and his friends. Yeah, his, his people. Job and his people. But in this section, this will take us all the way to chapter 37. So we have Job and, I'm going to call him his friends, talk. So there's talk going on here. And then after that, what's the next section of talking? God and Job talk, yes. And God does most of the talking, doesn't he? <laughs> but uh, Job, Job does respond. There's a, there's a few verses where he does respond. God and Job talk. And this, I think this simple outline is really helpful when you read the book of Job. To remember that the starting point of this whole book is God and Satan having a conversation. And we see Job and his friends trying to talk about it amongst themselves, right? Let's figure this out. Let's, let's understand this. Let's work through this together. And then at the end, we have God and Job talk, right? And so, you know, when God and Satan talk, who do they talk about? Job, right? When Job and his friends talk, who do they talk about? God and Job, but yes, God and his treatment of Job. And then when God and Job talk, who, who, do, who does God talk about? God. Yeah, and so it's just, I think it's really helpful to just remember that little outline, who's talking. And sometimes when you hit a difficult spot in Job, it's, it's just helpful to remember who's talking to who, all right? Who, who's this coming from? Who's listening? What's the conversation about? And, and it helps to, to clarify. Um, also with the outline idea, um, there's three sets of disputes and there's three sets of monologues. So let's talk about these. Chapters 4 to 27 is dispute. Now, you could include chapter 3, but chapter 3 is kind of Job's introduction of his trouble. The dispute doesn't really happen until chapter 4. So we have three disputes. And the disputes are among three friends. And there's actually three cycles to these disputes, but you have, you know, this back and forth. So Job will talk, and then Eli Eliphaz will talk, and then Job will talk, and then the next friend, uh, Bildad, will talk. And then Job will talk, and then we have the, the last friend, uh, Zophar, will talk. Yes. Um, somebody's read the book of Job before, okay. Um, and so... The, it works through three cycles. And so there's three sets. There's a first set of dispute with each one of them. Then they do a new set, each one of them in order. Now the final set of disputes only includes two of the friends. So I don't know if Zophar got tired of talking or if he had things to do or if he decided he wasn't getting listened to and he was out. I don't know. But the last one just has the two friends. And then the next section of the book is chapter 29 to 42, and we might say 41, but 41 or 42. And here we have the three monologues. And by monologue, this means it's not a back and forth. It's just a straight up speech, okay? And the first one, this first set is, um, so the first one is um, his, his final friend, his friend number four, named Elihu, E-L-I-H-U. And then the second one, is the monologue by Job, and then the third one is the monologue by God to Job. So you just see um, 
this section of dispute and then this section of speeches or monologues, we call them just one person speaking. Um, so let's break this down a little bit more. And I don't know if I'm going to write all this on the board, but I'm just going to make reference. In chapter one and two, we have God and Satan talking and Job's trial coming. In chapter three, we have Job cursing the day he was born. And this is where he, he really expresses the, the pain of his heart and his situation. In chapters 4 through 14, we have cycle number one. Eliaphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. That's chapters 4 through 14. Chapters 15 through 21 is cycle number two. Eliaphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Chapters 22 to 27 is this third cycle where it's just with two of the friends. So Eliaphaz, Job, and Bildad, Job. Now, chapter 28 is this interlude, and I made reference to it earlier. I will go into detail when we get there, that it's either Job's words or it's the author's words. Um, and I haven't studied it, so I, I don't know. But this 28 is kind of unique, and it's, it's kind of the turning point between the disputes and the monologues. That's why it's been left out of these, this diagram here. So chapter 28 is, is kind of an interlude or a turning point or a, a you know, word from the narrator, if you will. Then verse 29, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 29 to 31 is Job's monologue. So in chapter 29, he reminisces about the past. In chapter 30, he lays out his affliction again. And chapter 31, he gives his innocence and his declaration of innocence. Chapters 32 to 37 is Elihu's monologue. This is friend number four. And um, so there's kind of a, um, I won't break that down any further, but Elihu's monologue. And then verse, uh, verse, I keep saying that. Chapter 38 to 41 is God's response to Job. And there's two times that Job talks. In chapter 40, verse three through five, Job talks. And then chapter 42, one through six, Job talks again. And then 42, verse 7 to, to the end is the epilogue, the ending of the story. Let's look briefly at some key verses. Turn to chapter 1 and look at verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. This is after all the horrible things happened. Not all, but most all of the horrible things happened on that day. And verse 21, Job says, And said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. And that's chapter 1, 21 and 22. And we see that Job's initial response to God is not one of sin. And he, um, in fact, if you look at the very beginning, the, the writer of the book says that Job was perfect and upright. And then you listen to God and Satan talk, and God says that Job was perfect and upright. And then here, again, the, the writer says Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 10. Um, so I'll read verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak like one of the foolish women speaks. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, we, we find Job giving a righteous answer to his wife and refusing her temptation to sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. This is just kind of a famous verse uh, that declares kind of the condition of man. Job 5, verse 7, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The sparks may, being a reference to uh, a fire or a fire pit. And as the sparks go up, trouble continues to happen. Um, Job's making a statement about life that some people have not yet figured out. And that is life is painful. Um, it has pains, yes. But especially the longer you live, the more you see and you're aware of the pains of life. Some people have not come to grips with that reality. And so they have trouble processing their life because they're trying to find a life that doesn't exist, and that is a life without problems. And there is no life without problems. Now, there is an eternity, right? But we're talking about in this life. And so there's a statement there that, that is just, that's a philosophical statement there. Chapter 19, 
This is a famous, famous verse here as well. Chapter 19, verse 25 and 26. And this is Job speaking, and he says, Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day on the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. All right. Um, so Job believed in the resurrection, right? He believed that he would see God face to face. And so we have an Old Testament reference to resurrection here with Job. Ezekiel makes reference to Job. We won't take a look there. Ezekiel 14 and verse 14 and verse 20, if you want to look at that on your own. Another important New Testament reference to Job is in James. Now, in James chapter 5, it tells us, um, I'm going to turn over there. You can listen if you want, or you can turn, but James 5 is, is a reference to Job at the end of the book. And, you know, James was written with the Jews in mind, and so he references Job like his readers know about him. And it says of Job, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Um, I'm sorry, not 12. 11. Behold, we count them happy who endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and of tender mercy. So Job is referenced in James, and it says we've seen the end or the outcome of the Lord. In other words, Job was patient, and the outcome was, we don't want to say because of the patience, but we would say help produce the patience, right? And Job continued to believe in God throughout the book. Um, and I think it's very interesting that James 5 references Job when James 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or testings, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 2, 3, and 4. So James starts out his book with that, and then he ends talking about Job. And I think those two go together really well. Um, I'll just make reference of this if you want to look this up later, but Job 5, verse 12 is quoted in 1 Corinthians 3, 19. Job 16, 19 is quoted in Matthew 21, 9, as well as Mark eleven ten, And Job 41, 11 is quoted in Romans eleven thirty five. Romans eleven thirty five is that verse that says, who has known the mind of a Lord or who has been his counselor? And then it also says in there, who has given to him and will expect to receive again. The idea is who's ever loaned something to God and expected it back, right? The answer is no one. You don't loan things to God, all right? He's loaning everything to us. All right, I just have some concluding thoughts, and then we'll take any questions here. Job was obviously a monotheist. He believed in one God. What's interesting is that his three friends appeared to believe in one God. There's no talk in Job about multiple gods. And um, you remember Abraham was called out of idolatry. We made mention of that recently in our studies. So Job was not into idolatry, certainly at this point of his life. He was a monotheist. He believed in one God. And I think it was probably in a day when many people did not believe in only one God. They had moved on from that archaic thinking. And clearly the, Job, the God of Job is in charge of things. He's responsible. He knows. He has power. So we see a theology in Job there. We also see that Job believed in an afterlife, life after this one. And the other point that I maybe want to, you know, when we do an overview or an introduction, it's kind of hard to draw application. But I want to draw, I want to point us to this right here. Job and his friends talk and God and Job talk. And I, I find this really important because some people, when they have trouble in their life, they don't talk to anyone. They don't talk about it. It is all locked down and locked in. And Job is working through this, right? He is thinking, now granted, there were seven days of silence, so I'm not saying that, you know, some awful thing happens that the very next day you have to just, you know, no. I understand there's processing and all that. 
but Job and his friends talk about it. And more importantly, Job talks to God about it. And God talks to Job. And so, you know, earlier we sang, why worry when you can pray? The fact is, is that when you're worrying, you're thinking about the problem already, but you're just letting it cycle around in your head, right? Worry, worry, run around in circles. But you can take those same topics and turn them into prayers and tell God, like, you know about this and here's this thing I'm worried about. And you can tell him. And it's amazing how you get a very different outcome when you're still thinking about the same topics, but you're doing something different with them, right? So in, in a similar fashion, I might say that when you're going through deep, painful times, you tend to sit and ruminate on them. And you think, why me? And you think, this is so awful. And you think of all the reasons, you know, and what could have been and should have been, and all these different things. And they can really go round and round in your head. But in Job, we see that he talks to his friends. His friends talk to him. He talks to God. God talks to him. And it helps Job come to peace with where he is. And it helps him, I don't know if you'd say embrace or settle down in his thinking. Um, a couple other things. Job was indeed a righteous man, um, which means he was in relationship with God. Um, righteousness is not earned, and it wasn't earned in, in his day either. So that meant that he was in relationship to God. Um, he was uh, apparently living righteously, and so he was mature, he was um, righteous in his living. It's not a reference to perfection, but it's a reference to his uh, heart and his outlook and his lifestyle. And, um, you know, he couldn't repent of a sin that he hadn't committed, right? And this awful destruction is clearly not a, you know, you were off by five degrees on the temperature last week, so therefore all the, you know, it's not some minor little sin that brings some major destruction, in, especially in their thinking, right, in their thinking. So, so Job is not able to repent of some sin. His, his friends are like, oh, you've sinned, you've sinned. What, what are you hiding? What have you done? And he says, I, I haven't, right? And so um, he was a mature saint, but he couldn't repent of a sin that he hadn't committed. And to pretend to do so would be a lie. Um, we've already talked about that a little bit. I won't, um, I won't bring that up at this time. Certainly God is, is more complicated than we can imagine sometimes or than we grasp. And this life has complications that we don't always fully wrap our minds around. Um, let's close with just a couple things here and we'll take questions. What happens in, in this, this book on a big picture with his friends is that Job and his friends boil everything down to this one principle. And it's this. Bad things happen because of bad choices you have made. So therefore, what have you done? Right? They've boiled it all down to that. And they say they, they don't admit or believe that there can be any exception to that or any reality outside of that. And so they really go after this. And what they do is, in, in, the, in the process, they oversimplify things tremendously and they misrepresent God. And can I just say that in our Christian walk and in our Christian learning and living, we, we do have to be careful. You know, we want to make God simple and understandable, and we want to make the Bible truth simple and understandable, but we do have to be careful about oversimplification where we boil everything down to just this one thing, right? God is not just one thing, you know, and people do this with God is love, and, you know, God is God of wrath, and, and they just pick this one thing, and like, God is this, and it's like the only thing God is. And it's like, no, God is this, and this, and this, and this, and he's his own being, and, and, and so, in the book, we see that these, these friends have vastly oversimplified things and it's caused damage. Um, here's a question for us. Who is the biblical opposite of Job? Have you ever thought about that? I didn't think about it until this week. But when we think about what happened to Job and his situation, who would be the opposite to him in the Bible? Any guesses? All right, bad things happen to Job, right? So the opposite of bad things would be good things. Any guesses now? Solomon. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Solomon. Solomon had all the power and the money and the women and the wealth and all of those things that he had. He had every blessing, if you will, that God could give someone. Like he had it times 10. And then Job had 
he was a wealthy man and he had a lot of stuff, but it was taken all away from him, right? And so it's interesting that both of these men point back to God, right? And they say God is worthy of trust. And from a positive side, we'd say Solomon is an excellent person to say that because any person in this world who says, oh, the real meaning of life is to, you know, have wealth or have power or have women or whatever it is, Solomon can say, been there, done that, that's not it, right? But Job, on the other hand, can identify with almost every suffering, with almost every sorrow, and he can say, God is God, and he must be trusted in all times and in all things. All right, any question or comment as we go? Deborah, Debbie. Yes, all right, well, that is a question that oftentimes uh, people kind of struggle with. The word perfect there, my understanding, is that it refers to complete, mature. Um, it's not perfect in saying he's never sinned, but it is saying that he is uh, someone who is living obediently before God. So sometimes when we, we, when we see the word perfect, we tend to think of it in very strict terms of like 108% A+, plus, not an error on the page, right? And anything less than that is imperfect, right? But um, the, I, I think the, the meaning and the idea is that he lived a life where he sought to be obedient, he loved his God, he, he prayed, he did all of the things that God wanted him to do. Not saying he did everything perfectly, but that he himself lived a righteous life. So... I can try to go into that more maybe next week when I study that out. Any questions or comments other than that? All right. Well, let's be dismissed with prayer, and then we'll do our announcements. Tim, would you pray for us, please?